Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Comics Hitmen Retrospective Series. There are only murderers in this room. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob will be reviewing the film adaptations of Road to Perdition. This is the life we chose, the life we lead. And there is only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. A history of violence. You got anything to say before I blow your brains out, you miserable prick? V for Vendetta. Are you like a crazy person? I'm quite sure they will say so. The Losers. I am a lethal killing machine. It was a secret government experiment. It did stuff to me. Spooky stuff. Red and Red 2. Eh, they don't make them like that anymore. These podcasts will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Because it's all so fucking hysterical. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, Billy. Let's show this asshole we mean business. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate, we are discussing V for Vendetta, starring Natalie Portman, Hugo Weaving, Stephen Ray, John Hurt, and directed by James Mateague. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is your vibrant, vivacious, vital host who views vets and verifies the verisimilitude of valuation of videos, Jacob. Yikes. Could they have picked a better letter? It's really hard looking up all these V words. It's a Roman numeral. I mean, we'll find out it's not even V. <laughs> I mean, they were kind of stuck with the V, but V, yeah, that's a tongue twister. I give it to you guys for even trying. They could have done I for indignation then. That's a Roman <laughs> numeral. <laughs> well, we are at V. V for Vendetta. The third of our DC hitmen and the first one that makes any sense as part of a DC Comics retrospective series, not just because it starts with a DC Comics logo, but because it's the first one that feels like a comic book. It stars a superhero. We've done two what felt more like indie dramas that we'd see it can versus a comic book. I believe this is also our first Alan Moore adaptation. If you don't count Constantine, which wasn't a direct adaptation of his comic, of a graphic novel, but... Yeah, it was a character he created, but not something he had written. Right. And you know what? I gave Constantine a pass. I like Alan Moore. It should be said, the non-comic book guy does try and catch up with his stuff. I hadn't read V for Vendetta when I first saw this, when it first came out, in America anyway, in 2006. But I have read Watchmen, I have read From Hell, I did read Lost Girls, and I did, for this second viewing, go back and read the source material so I could see the contrast. You know, Alan Moore's sticky, he's hard to adapt, and he never seems to like the movies that are made, but I always find them interesting. I always want them to get made. I think that he is a kind of mad genius when it comes to deconstructing the superhero genre. And Arnie, you said this is the one that you feel like is starting with DC. We see the logo, but the publishing history, this did not start as a DC or Vertigo, the imprint from DC that published it. This started as a story in the UK anthology Warrior, starting in 1982, I believe. If you've read the graphic novel, you'll notice it's broken up into three books. 
it wasn't until that third book came along when Alan Moore was wrapping it up that DC got the rights and published it. And I've actually read this comic. I saw this movie not in theaters. I was actually all primed to go see it the 5th of November in 05. It was pushed back because of the London bombings into 06. So I skipped it in theaters, ended up seeing it on home video when it was a new release. And so enthralled by it, I wanted to see that source material. I went back and read the entire Alan Moore graphic novel as it's now published as a single unit. So we're all on the same page then. We all read the graphic novel for this one. I think this is the first. I haven't read it <laughs> since 06. So it's been a while. I remember actually liking the movie better and thinking that that comic had some atrocious art where I even had trouble telling people apart. <laughs> Yeah, more style. Well, if you've, you've listened to Books of Nachos, Arnie and I typically disagree on the art, and I'm probably going to disagree with you again here, but I didn't see this movie when it came out in theaters. I had read the graphic novel. You know, this is a story about anarchism. That was something I was heavily involved in as a punk, you know, exploring these different political ideas. So one that was kind of a staple when it first came out and one that I had read often. Didn't see the movie, though. I think it had something to do. You know, Alan Moore hates these adaptations from Hollywood. He won't accept the money. His artists love it because all the money then goes to them that he would have gotten. But whenever you're trying to adapt his stuff, it gets tricky. And so I've always been slow to go see them in the theater. You mentioned Batman. I'll confess, when I was in my comic book buying phase, which was about a year and a half in the late 80s, early 90s, I remember seeing this comic book and I thought it was a Batman story. I thought that was Joker. I thought that V was actually the Joker. There's something about his smile that I've just, I assumed it was Batman. I didn't even pick it up to look at it. And when the movie was coming out, I was a little confused. I thought it was a Burger King ad. <laughs> you guys remember? <laughs> the king. Yes. The creepy, creepy king. Yeah, he was like hanging outside your window, that like ominous looking mascot. Yeah, just a porcelain face. Chasing down burger hungry suburbanites. I don't know. It was a strange ad campaign, but it was going on around the time of this movie. So yeah, the holdup for me was always this character. I didn't understand what V was supposed to be, what he represented, who was going to play him. It was always a weird disconnect. I wasn't sure I could enjoy a movie where someone spends their whole time behind that mask. But I did go see it in theaters, and this will be my second viewing. Stuart, you're not familiar with Guy Fawkes Day? You're not getting in tune with UK holidays here? Remember, remember? You can't remember what you never learned. <laughs> I would say, being that my entire education is based on American public schools, I didn't know who Guy Fawkes was. I've never heard of the gunpowder treason. I didn't know that this was a day. I didn't know that November 5th was celebrated by anyone. I learned about Guy Fawkes Day by accident. I was living in New Zealand for a couple of years, and I went over to this family that I knew on the 5th of November, and they're like blowing stuff up in their backyard. They got all these fireworks. I'm like, what's going on? It's not the 4th of July. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's Guy Fawkes Day. He was this guy who tried to blow up Parliament, and they hung him, so we celebrate by blowing off fireworks. I'm like, oh... Okay, that seems like a weird holiday that you, they would actually burn him in effigy and things like that. But I knew a little bit about it because of that time I spent in not the UK, but in a country that had a heavy United Kingdom influence. So what are they celebrating? The fact that he got arrested and was stopped or the fact that he dared to try and blow it up? That he got arrested and stopped. At least that's how they explained it to me. I think probably because of this movie, the tables have been reversed. I, I yes. think Sky Fox, which is weird because he was a like Catholic militant. He wanted to kill the Protestant king and put in a Catholic government into England. Like nothing about being an anarchist, a, a very religious man trying to overthrow 
overthrow and set up a religious monarchy. Hmm. That's not how I would take it having seen this film. No, it's very interesting to see how this film has really shaped our ideas of Guy Fox and the 5th of November and the gunpowder treason. It's taken on a very different meaning because of this work. That's true. If you've never picked up a comic, if you've never seen the movie, you've probably seen this mask. If you watched any news coverage of the occupation movement of the last several years, I do feel like this is an icon now, and it may be attributable to this film. Maybe even more than Moore's comic book. What I find hilarious is you get the Occupy movement buying up these masks. Time Warner owns the rights to this mask. You know, DC owned by Warner Brothers. So they get a cut. Every time an anarchist or some hippie, some Occupy person buys these masks to protest, you're helping a major corporation. Maybe they stole them. <laughs> well, it's the number one mask on Amazon, so it's hard to shoplift from an e-tailer. <laughs> That is crazy and full of ironies, but it's a totally appropriate for this movie because it does work in all sorts of strange contradictions, as it were. Part of the reason why Alan Moore is not a fan of what happens with this comic is because it definitely has been updated. The comic was very much about a Thatcher-era London. This is still London, but it had a lot more of the world politics of 2005 in it than it ever did Moore's politics. Oh, definitely. I remember talk radio hosts railing against this. This is criticizing Bush and the war on terrorism. You know, they knew nothing about the comic. I'm like, no, this is about Thatcher. I hadn't seen the movie at this point, so I had no idea the direction it went. But I'm like, no, this is a story about Thatcher in England, not a story about Bush in America. Oh, no, this was a story about Bush in America. And oh, it- I got that once I saw it. <laughs> That's one of the things that kind of drew me to it. When I saw this in 2006, I had just entered the workforce as a professional adult. I had worked for my adult life, but never had like a job with benefits, never had a mortgage. And I think that the socio-political economic status of the U.S. really struck me hard once I became a homeowner and a working professional that had to start looking at 401ks and things. And in this era, I was disenfranchised with almost all political parties. I felt that our government was hopeless I'm not going to say whether or not my feelings on that have changed, but at that point I felt both parties were completely ruinous, and this film spoke to me. That's why I went out and got the comic, is I'm like, how could somebody have written something in the 80s that is so perfectly now? And they did change it a lot. I mean, there are some parallels between Thatcher UK and 21st century Bush and Obama US, but... I think that that is what makes this movie is going to be its commentary on 21st century America, despite being set in 2030 in London. Yeah, that's right. So if you're one of those people that doesn't like to hear us talk about the politics of a movie or that kind of subtext, I think that maybe you ought to turn this one off now. It's replete with it. There's just no way of discussing V for Vendetta without looking at the time and the politics of which it was made. But Arnie? Why don't you go ahead and tell them what this story is about? Fee for Vendetta tells us the story of one year in a dystopic London in the 2030s. America's war on terror has caused the U.S. economy to plummet, and the nation that once led the world is now considered a continent of lepers. Meanwhile, in the U.K., a biological weapon killed hundreds of thousands of people, but a cure was found. But with this cure, a new totalitarian English regime, led by High Chancellor Adam Sutler, emerges, in which homosexuals and dissidents are kept in concentration camps, and a secret police called the Fingermen patrol the streets. 
But in this era, one man stands up to authorities. Wearing a Guy Fawkes mask and calling himself only V, the man blows up the Bailey Building in London on the 5th of November. He then takes to the airwaves, encouraging Londoners to stand up for themselves, and one year later on November 5th, he will blow up Parliament, fulfilling Guy Fawkes' 400-year-old quest. We see this story as told through the eyes of Evie, a young woman who V saves from rape at the hands of the Fingermen, and then Evie saves V from a policeman when he invades the television station to broadcast his message. Evie first rejects V's plans and tries to turn him into authorities, but V has inspired the London populace, causing Sutler and his aide Creedy, head of the Fingermen, to tighten the screws on the English people. When Evie is about to be captured by Fingermen, V captures her instead. Letting her believe she's being interrogated by the Fingermen, V shaves her head and keeps her captive in a cell. He eventually reveals his deception only when Evie no longer fears her own death. Having seen the purpose of V's plan and the suffering of the imprisoned, Evie follows V on that November 5th. But V leaves it to Evie to pull the lever that will take the explosives by subway to Parliament, while V goes to execute Creedy and Sutler. V succeeds in his killings, but is himself mortally wounded. He returns to Evie in the subway and dies, and Evie puts his body in the train and sets the explosives to Parliament, while thousands of Londoners all wearing Guy Fawkes masks stand outside in support of V. Okay, well, first, I noted that Alan Moore did not like this adaptation. I looked up why. It seemed like the big criticism he had for it was that they had hijacked the things that he wanted to talk about and made it much more about America. He called it cowardice that they tell a story set in futuristic London that is not about futuristic London at all. It's made by Americans using Britain as a backdrop to attack Bush. I ask you, would you have accepted a V for Vendetta set in America? Could they have transposed this story to some futuristic, post-apocalyptic United States? Yeah, I don't think that would have been tough to do at all. I think, though, if you're going to build this film around this Guy Fox character, that would seem very weird if you carried him over into America. <laughs> I don't know, Johnny Appleseed or something? You'd have to do some major rewrites, I think, to have it work in America. I'm thinking either Malcolm X or Crazy Horse, like a Native American maybe <laughs> would have been a good way to go. But it had to be someone that stood up to America, not an American patriot. It would have to be a dissident, Che Guevara. It would have to be someone that was fighting the American because that's what's the dynamic here. It should be said. They're saying that the people that represent parliament and British government are corrupt and must be destroyed. Would we accept a story in which we celebrate the people that have tried to overthrow America, redcoats or yeah, Native Americans or black militants or any kind of group that has been called a dissident? I think that would have been bold, but it would have taken away so much of what I do like with this imagery. I mean, I like the Orwellian vibe, if you will. This has a very strong 1984 feel to it. Oh, yeah. I'd hate for that to go away. My thinking, it goes back to what is said in this movie about how writers use lies to tell the truth. The more you bring it to America, the more you Americanize it, the less you're telling lies and you just start broaching on making Fahrenheit 9-11. So... I think it's been a long-standing tenant of science fiction and as its cousin, the comic book, to take things and make them completely fantastical. Look at the old 60s Star Trek series. Every single episode was a comment on something going on in the U.S. in the 60s. Hippies, racism, silicone monsters that eat minors. All things really happening in the 60s that Gene Roddenberry took to the 23rd century. So 
to do this in the U.S. is to take away that lie and just make it too close to home. The thing that makes science fiction that comments on current times devious is that it's insidious. You can have William Shatner kiss Uhura and have the first interracial kiss in broadcast to the homes across the country, but because it's in the science fiction setting, nobody blinks. And if you started making it America, you're going to take away the comfort of a story. The ones who had the mindset like me before owning my first house where they aren't politically minded could enjoy this as a action film from the guys who brought us The Matrix. If you read a newspaper and follow politics at all, you can't. And I think it works on both those levels. If you made it too overt, you lose that. Yeah, I would be shocked if they would have placed this in America. I'm shocked that this film came out as soon, you know, it was five, six years after 9-11. But I'm shocked that a film like this came out in that climate. I mean, we were in the midst of war at this time. And here's a film about, hey, terrorism's great. It's going to free you from the tyrannical government that's supposedly saving you from the terrorist. I mean, to bring that to America, I don't think that would have ever gotten made. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, Arnie, it's not that it would have been too painful to watch. We would have never had an opportunity to watch it. They would not have made a movie in which we celebrate some terrorist blowing up a building on American soil. It just would not have found fun. They hint at it a little bit here. I mean, at the beginning, the very first thing that is said, we're introduced to the world through the kind of blowhard talk radio figure, if you were. They call him the voice of London. Rush Limbaugh, right? Yeah, right. Prothero is what they call him here. But his first big complaint is about how America is sending them junk and that they ought to protest like America did by dumping it all in the harbor and having their own tea party here. I think it's the only way that this movie kind of acknowledges that while these may be American politics being filtered into London, London was complicit with Bush in the handling of the war on terror, the invasion of Iraq, Tony Blair, it cost him his job, quite frankly, because he sided with American politics and the way it was handled at that time. So maybe London is America. Maybe it does work as an extension of American politics and thus American criticism in this world. I buy it. It's not a problem for me, but I do understand that the creator, it will never sit right with him. And he is British. I mean, I completely understand him getting pissed that we're taking a statement that he made, which was very subversive and forward thinking for the time. I mean, now you can look back on those Thatcher era commentaries and go, "Uh uh-huh. But at the time, that was really something strange to say. And in comic books in the 80s, to be pro-homosexual and all of that, that's really forward thinking and controversial. So to take this revolutionary work and to remove it from his homeland, I could see why that would piss him off. Alan Moore's writing, just thinking about that work and all that, it's so dense. It's surprising to me that he writes graphic novels. I mean, he only writes the stories, right? He writes the text and other people do the drawings. Correct. Yeah, I almost feel like the way that he writes, it's a real challenge to get those words. I mean, I look at those panels and sometimes the word blocks are bigger than the pictures. I mean, it's dense writing. It's hard to transcribe. Hats off to anyone that's brave enough to try and get these highly cerebral stories and visualize them in a movie. It works against it. I mean, yes, this is a comic book, and so there is a visual story to tell, but I feel like this could play just as well on as a novel as a movie. I mean, this is a really difficult adaptation, and so I want to celebrate, really, the fact that the Wachowskis were able to take that work 
And yeah, give us Batman in 1984. And they've built such a dense world here, country, but actually, yeah, the whole world, that it takes me a while. Even though this is my third or fourth viewing, I haven't seen it in several years. It takes me a while to get back into it and figure out exactly what's going on. What has happened to England in the span of just a couple decades that you have this Hitler leading the place. I mean, they show early footage of Sutler as the ruler of the country, and I've seen enough videos of Hitler to tell they are taking the exact facial expressions, camera angles, and everything from those old Hitler videos when he used to give speeches and having Sutler do them. So you're telling me right there what this fascist regime in charge of England is, but the fingermen, the curfew, everything going on, it takes, I'd say, a good half hour before everything really sinks in. Yeah, this is my second viewing, and I remember the first time I watched this. I've read the graphic novel, but this is even more condensed. They pack a lot of stuff in here, and that graphic novel, it might be a little too dense. And there's so many characters, and I feel like i got to map them all out to keep track of who's who. You have the fingermen, and the nose, and the eye, and the face. You have all these different parts of the government, and with this film, I remember the first time I watched this, I'm like trying to parse it all out, and even watching it a second time, it's been a few years, you don't get it all up front. You don't get the whole story. You know, you get little glimpses, and things will be revealed as they go on, but there's a lot going on that it's one you have to pay attention to we get it because they use broad strokes you're right there's nazi imagery later we'll see concentration camps we'll see things that will remind us of guantanamo and things in the news it's very broad strokes i'm not sure all of the criticisms being leveled are fair but that's not how i'm going to judge the movie the movie is a satire you got to go big you got to go broad when you do that I think it's fair to create an indictment that's large scale. They do that here, but we never lose sight of the fact that this is being driven by, well, is he a superhero or is he a hitman? We've included this in our DC hitman, but I ask you guys, could V have been a DC hero? He might fit more into that more comic book world, more removed from reality. Well, we are removed from reality. We're in the future. We're going to see he was some kind of patient tested on. And is that why he has all these super strong fighting abilities? I'm not sure. But yeah, this is much more 1984 Big Brother science fiction feeling than those last two films we've just done about the, you know, small town gangster films. Yeah, V feels like a superhero, but... He's a superhero whose mission is assassination, along the lines of the Punisher in some regards. It's a very specific hit list of those who wronged him or he feel wronged him and bringing down the government at the same time. But we see at the end of this movie, bringing down the government is actually secondary to his personal revenge. So I think that he fits in both because he is so anarchistic. And his mission is to kill a certain number of people and leave them a rose. I think he counts as a hitman, but he also has these really super knives that he can throw in bullet time. Knife time is what I call it. <laughs> yes. I do feel like it's because he's killing that he doesn't count. I mean, you pointed that out with Batman, is that the traditional Batman never actually kills the enemy. He's not out to go whack people. This guy clearly... It's in his heart to get vengeance. He's a vigilante. It's not about solving the problems. It's about putting people 
down. And so that's why I think that it really should stay in this series. And it's hard to think of him as a hero, even though, yeah, at the same time, he's got incredible fencing skills and he wears a mask and comes out at night and has an alternate identity in a secret lair and is just so Batman. I'll tell you what, I get a really strong influence that this comic and maybe this movie might have had as Nolan shaped his Batman trilogy here. It really comes apparent to me that what they're doing here, what Moore did on the page, was a blueprint of sorts for that Nolan verse of Batman. Could that be because V talks about how you can kill a man, but you can't kill an idea? almost verbatim from what Bale will say in those Nolan Batman films, that it's all about the symbolism and the theatrics and becoming more than a man, becoming an idea. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of that lip service. And then later in the movie, they do stuff in the comic that they don't do in it, even in the movie, but it really reminded me of the Dark Knight Rises scenario that Bane kind of puts the city through. It's clearly an influence. I wouldn't have thought that off the top, even from my distant memory of a first time. I'm like, ah, it's not like Batman at all. It really is. And that should be acknowledged. Well, one of my ins for this movie was Natalie Portman. This was her first big picture after the Star Wars trilogy. And she's back doing her very worst Queen Amidala English accent again. Thank you, Hardy. If I'm going to have a big problem with this film, it is Portman. I never buy her in this role. I mean, we're going to believe that she's going to grow up to become a tough anarchist that is going to lead England into a new era. That's got to be some convincing acting. And yeah, straight off from that accent, I'm not buying it. Really? I'm not going to say she's great. I think it's credible, I guess it would be the word. I don't feel like she's a problem. I think that it's unfair because we know that she's not British. So, of course, we're looking to find the fallacy in it. I mean, I think American actors tend to get judged because we know they're American. So when they do it, we're looking for the cheat. She's okay here. I mean, it's the problem is not her ability to sustain the accent. I don't know British dialects well enough to know whether it's phony baloney or not, quite honestly. As it, for, to my American ear, it's okay. What the problem seems to be, and it may come as much from the writing as Portman, is that I'm not always understanding where she emotionally is in the scenes. She goes through an incredible range. Her journey is really the movie's journey. We are to follow her through all the experience. V doesn't really change, but she does. And yeah, there are just moments and scenes that ring false when she betrays him. I don't know that I understand the character. I'll leave it at that. And Portman doesn't elucidate that. I just think her accent comes and goes. I don't know why they chose an American to play a Brit. I know there's a lot of British actresses in America What about Kira Knightley, who is such a clone of Natalie Portman? She played a body double of Natalie Portman in Phantom Menace and is British and can naturally do the accent. Taking an American story and putting it in England, good. Taking American actors and putting them in England for an English story about America, not so good. You guys really going to say she's bad with the accent? You felt like it was completely terrible. Yes. Completely. Okay. Wow. It seemed like something that she had to really concentrate on. Like, maybe that's where the rest of her acting went. She had to really concentrate to keep that accent going. It, I don't, it's distracting for me. It's distracting for me. She's not very good in this movie in general. 
Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing you guys don't think that she's very good, and you might have some residual Star Wars baggage in there. I'm hearing a little bit of I'm not a fan, but I thought that she was adequate. The problems I have with this character are more with the way that it plays out. It's changed. It's worth pointing out in the story, this is a young woman who has entered into prostitution, that things are so bad in this London that she has no other means to support herself than to proposition customers and that's why she gets in trouble with these fingermen it's not that she's out past curfew and trying to meet her gay boss across town it's sort of a weird setup that never really does make total sense as to why she would disobey curfew yeah i'm not quite sure why she's out she seems like a very law-abiding citizen and the fact that she's out she's getting accosted by what appear to be thugs and turn out to be the fingermen it's a very quick setup to introduce her to V, and I'm fine with that. I'm glad we don't spend a lot of time with Evie in her daily life before she encounters V. I don't think I'd find that very interesting. Would you be okay with that darker perception if she was a street hustler as opposed to a PA at the British news organization? I'd be okay with that. I think that her career never really plays into it. If you had her following the same emotional journey, horror or newscaster, very minor difference anyway. And I think that holds in real life. I think it might have been a little too dark. I think I'm not saying it couldn't have worked and maybe it would have been the twist for me, but it could have lost some mainstream audiences. I mean, you need to have an altruistic character. I'm not sure V is it. I mean, is V the good guy? Do you relate to him at the beginning? I mean, we're grateful. He saves her twice. But he's also got bombs. He's also blowing up buildings. But he's doing it to classical music, so that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) At least in the comic, V is a much more morally ambiguous character. I feel like you bring this to Hollywood, you got to make him somewhat the hero. We're going to make Big Brother even a bigger brother, so we want to see them bombed. We want to see him blown up. I think we're supposed to buy into his ideas in this film because that's what happens in a Hollywood film, whereas that graphic novel, I think it's more to challenge you, to make you question. There are moments, we're going to get moments where I question my allegiance to him, but I think right off the bat, we're supposed to buy into him and buy into his journey and his cause. And I do. Yeah, that is the way he's written. And that's the way I want to treat him. And I also want to just give props to an actor we never get to see. But Hugo Weaving, I think, does amazing things without ever showing us his face. It is a very heroic characterization. I guess what's weird is that, yeah, we're past 9-11. And the hero of this story is someone that thinks the way to get things done is by blowing up buildings. That's the part that was sticky for me then and even kind of now i mean it's difficult i'm reminded of fight club really a pre-9-11 movie in which espoused the same kind of naive philosophy that if you blow up the building everything will be better somehow one of the things with v when he's first introduced that gets me is he's so damn eloquent i can't understand a damn thing he's saying (laughs) when he does that whole v monologue and i love natalie portman i love she's like are you like a crazy person (laughs) Like, yes, you have come off as a crazy person. I agree with you there. Yeah, he speaks so quickly and uses such words. And through tone of voice, I get what he's saying, but I couldn't tell you a damn thing he said. No, it's actually, it's a kind of bad foot to start out on. First time I saw it, I remember turning to the person I was watching it with and went, "Uh uh-oh, like not knowing (laughs) anything about the story. I was afraid he was going to talk like this the entire movie. I thought every expression he was going to have would be told in alliterative these and that it, it just would have to have that 
alliteration in order for him to say it or he wouldn't say it. I was like, I cannot deal with this character if this is going to be an entire movie. But it, it's just a way of using that tack to intimidate the Fingerman. I mean, in his mind, he's the Count of Monte Cristo, right? I mean, in his mind, he's just pretending he's in a movie for a short period. But that's not who he is. That's not how he's going to be for the rest of the movie. I'm glad because I honestly wouldn't have been able to understand his motivations or his quest. There's not that many V words, are there? No, no, there's not. Probably the strongest part of this film is Hugo Weaving. I believe he wasn't originally cast for this part, was he? Yeah, it was originally supposed to be James Purefoy. I don't know who that is. Oh, he was on Rome. He's in Resident Evil. Yeah. Yeah, he's done stuff. And he didn't like the mask, so he quit. We actually see him in some of the films. So they use some of the scenes. He filmed for, I guess, several weeks, six weeks, and then just quit. And so they replaced him with Hugo Weaving and had Hugo Weaving. Well, he had to redub all the dialogue anyway because he was behind a mask. And so he redubbed his and redubbed Pure Voice. Must have been hard to match up the lips. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but there is something about that mask. I feel like it changes expression. I know it doesn't. I know it's the same mask and everything, but it's something about the way he tilts his head or maybe it's the inflection of the voice. It's the performance that he is able to create through body language and through his intonation that makes you believe sometimes that is a face and not a mask. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Stuart. There's a personality that comes across with this character, and I've often complained in these superhero movies, oh, we, we got to reveal the character. We're paying, you know, this Robert Downey Jr., Christian Bale, whoever, millions of dollars. We got to take the mask off. We got to be able to see their face. You don't ever see the face here. It's a bold and a brave move to take in a film that's already very risky because of its politics and it's something that really impressed me that this v character is always v we never get behind that mask it's always weaving wearing that using body language using his voice to sell the character i can't help but think that part of the reason they're able to do that is because it's hugo weaving and not Tom Cruise or somebody. I mean, Hugo Weaving, yeah, he was in Lord of the Rings. He was in The Matrix. He was in movies that made gobs and scads of money. But none of those movies made their money because of Hugo Weaving. They just happened to be movies that Hugo Weaving was in. So he's cheap enough. You can keep it behind the mask. He's doing an ad for, like, hospitals now. I mean, it's a great ad, but he's not a face star that people need to see. I think it's a great choice that they leave him behind the mask. That said, for all my dismissal of Hugo Weaving, I can't imagine anyone being able to pull it off. You guys say you see emotion in the mask, and I think I see that too at times. But what I love is that mask always has that smile, and Weaving can give us a sad voice or a threatening voice. But you see that smile, and it makes V more likable, doesn't it? It's like it's all one grand joke, no matter what's coming out of the mouth behind the mask. Yeah, maybe it's a social experiment. Maybe if I smiled all the time, even when I'm yelling at someone, they would say I'm a very happy person. I don't know. (laughs) It's a good thing to wonder. But I think it's important not to think of V as someone who is flippant and that who's always smiling about everything. He's not the Joker. He does have deeply held convictions. I don't feel like the smile represents an ambivalence or a amusement at the circumstances going on. He's quite serious about everything that he's trying to accomplish with his hits. Oh, he is serious, but he is also very playful. I mean, he's orchestrating music to it. 
he's not the Joker, but there's an element of that to him. Yes, it is only an element, but it is a key one, I think, to winning us over. If he didn't make me laugh, I probably wouldn't be willing to humor him and listen to what he thought about the world. Like I said, he's the one that straps on a bomb after blowing up the old Bailey, walks into the propaganda tower, Jordan Tower, and threatens to blow everyone there up unless they play his DVD. And this scene I did not remember. I saw him going to the news station where Evie worked and... I thought he was there for Evie. I didn't remember. He didn't even know she was there. It was a grand coincidence that he had saved her the night before and taken her up on the roof and then gone the next day so he could broadcast his message to all London. And there she is. And the police are there looking for her. That's why they're able to get the drop on V so quickly as they were already there. Yeah, and this was all Wachowski moves here. They were able to condense a lot of things. It plays differently. And it's easier to understand what's going on in the movie than the book. Whether the graphic novel is inferior to the movie, I'm not prepared to say. All I can tell you is I would need to read that graphic novel, V for Vendetta, many times in order to get everything that Alan Moore is trying to express there. It's too dense to permeate. Whereas this movie, it's much more audience friendly because Evie's there at the tower. Even if I don't know if I like V yet, I do like her. And so there are stakes, there's tension. I want to see her get away. I'm curious when she uses her mace to allow him to avoid capture. And Evie doesn't know why she does it. I don't know why Evie does it. Evie later regrets the decision. It does seem out of character for the character we're going to then follow for the next hour. She's such a rule abider, but yet we've seen her break curfew and then mace a finger man. And yet she's later going to be the ones trying to turn people into V. She's a very strange character to try to peg. Whereas, I mean, comparing to what we saw last week with the history of violence, where every actor told me everything I needed to know about their character through a look. Here, I'm getting a cipher out of Evie. Yeah. But I would say this, like the other two movies in this Hitman series, I do see this as sort of a father and child relationship. I think if there's an answer to this, we eventually learn Evie is the child of rebels and dissidents. I think that she sees a bit of the father she lost in this V character. I think that's why she allows herself that moment to protect him. We repeatedly see this little girl throughout this film. After this assault on the TV station, the media claims that they shot V. We saw earlier V put Guy Fox mask all over all the employees there, so the cops didn't know who was who, and they accidentally shoot one. They say, oh, they killed him. That girl's like, bollocks! And we'll see her later put on the Guy Fox mask and do graffiti, and I buy it that she could be the next V, but yeah, <laughs> Evie, her arc, maybe it is just this father-daughter thing that it's not played out very well. Well, again, it does a disservice having just watched History of Violence last week, trying to compare Natalie Portman's acting to the what we saw there. V did come in and save her, and so maybe there is some attraction there, some connection where he did save me, let me turn around and save him. Maybe I don't agree with him, but I don't want to see him die. I don't see a father-daughter relationship between V and Evie. I see lovers. I mean, when she walks out into the lair, he's watching the Count of Monte Cristo, and, and she joins him. And at the end, you see the two lovers in the movie and she's crying and she says it's sad because the man cared more about revenge than he cared about his lover. 
Well, that's what they will play out. They're dancing together. I'm getting a big Phantom of the Opera vibe here. I mean, he just needs to yell, Christine! Maybe. I think they play with that, but I think that was her relationship with her father. When we saw those flashbacks of her as a child, played by Imogene Poots. Again! I just love saying I'm Imogene Poots. But yes, (laughs) when we see that, she's handing out leaflets. She's having to be the daughter of these revolutionaries. She didn't have a childhood. She, you know, has one moment she holds on to where she was in a play that her mother saw. But I do feel like it was a childhood seeking approval from people that were more concerned about what was going on in the world than what was going on with their daughter. I think we get that in the flashback. What's hard, again, I put it on the writing and just the construction of the story is it's hard for Natalie Portman, the actress, to convey that when all of these moments are happening by another actress at a different point in the movie long after the fact. It's hard. Again, I don't entirely put it on Portman, but I will say this. She's not going above and beyond and selling me on these moments. I think that it's not much better than adequate, but it is adequate. I'm going to say there's a lot of good going on here, though. I feel like I've been very negative towards this film thus far. But despite Portman's character arc, I have trouble understanding it in retrospect. But in the moment, I'm very taken into this world of V. I love the glee with which he blows up the Bailey building and has the music. I also am really intrigued by this government and how they have a cover-up at the ready. Oh, we're going to demolition it anyway. And they have the media in their pocket. They're handing the media the lies to tell. They have the news person. The news doesn't create the lies. That's for the government to do. We just report that. And all of this going on, they've created such a world with so many characters The key ones being Creedy, head of the Fingermen, who answers to Sutler, who runs the government. But then we also have Inspector Finch, who is seemingly the only non-corrupt member of this cabal running the government, who's in charge of trying to find E.V. and V. And he's the one through whom we'll find out most of the story. As he uncovers the conspiracy, so do we, the audience. I always like this Finch character. In the graphic novel, it was a character I was drawn to. They play this first act as much more of a mystery. These people dying and why, and Finch is your end character. And his story plays out very differently in that graphic novel. Ends up doing LSD and all kinds of crazy stuff. But in this film, too, this is my end character. V is outlandish and crazy and, you know, a terrorist. Not a fan of corrupt government. I don't know if I want to start blowing up buildings, though, to protest it. And Evie, well, I've said my piece with her and and the acting there. I'm not really getting into her character, but I like Finch. He is my in. He's going in. He's trying to discover the truth. V is just as much of a propagandist as Sutler is. And and so I like this character that's kind of in the middle of the road. He works for the government, but he really is trying to find the truth. Well, he's Irish. That's the one line that they give you. I'm just like, he's not (laughs) as good as the other ones because he comes from a culture that is somewhat of an upstart from England. So they suspect him. His partner is much more of a company man. He's the one that pulls the gun on V and says you're not getting away, that Evie has to mace. Finch, there's just a bit of doubt. He's just not so sure that he's going to swallow the stories that are being said about V. I think that there's a part of him that wants to celebrate V. There's just a little bit of him that wants to 
not condemn him before he has all of the facts. And I think that's why we're drawn to him more than any of these other people. I mean, Creedy is abducting people. He spies on you. If you say something against the government, he'll come in in the middle of the night and throw a bag over your head and whisk you off to Guantanamo or wherever he's going to put you. I think that that is one of the more overt satirical characters from the Bush cabinet. I I definitely see some Cheney they put into that. Whether you want to enjoy that or condemn the movie for that, it is a character that is meant to be broad satire. But Finch is a more reasonable man, and I think that's why we stay with him over the mystery. And that's really what happens in Act 2. I mean, what really launches us into the second part of this movie, now that a building has been blown up and another one has been taken hostage, is V has made it known what he stands for. In one year, they have 365 days to catch him, but in one year, he is going to do this again to Parliament. He's going to fulfill that legacy, and it's going to go boom, and he's going to require a team effort. I mean, I think what he's saying is, and it becomes more overt when we get to the climax, is I'm only going to do this if I have the will of the people with me. But I think that I do, and I'm going to try and inspire them to come to the cause. And so that's really what's going to happen in the second act. Uh, They're going to try to catch him before the people become too inspired. They're going to keep trying to create stories in which they say V is dead, and there's no reason to hope for this parliament exploding. Yeah, V calls the people out. He says, there is a corrupt government because you have allowed it. And so if you need to stand up against that and, yeah, come out to Parliament. I love that he calls him out. You know, I'm not going to go with all the politics of this story. I, I think this is a very pop anarchist story. Yes. But there are things. Why do we have the government we have? Well, because we don't demand a better one. doesn't mean you have to blow up buildings. But, yeah, maybe you go out and protest in front of Parliament or something. V's speech feels entirely taken. And this is not a criticism because I love the movie. But if you ever saw the movie Network, there is a story about a media figure who preaches anarchy, basically, to the American public. And they love him for it. And it's just such an inspiring thing when he blows on television and pours his heart out. This scene's got all of that. I mean, I really think it's really a transformative moment when V says that the problem is us, but we can change. I do feel inspired. I do feel hope. Oddly enough, I now want to see Parliament blown up because what that will mean is that people will have hoped for something more than what they have. But up until that point, I really wasn't sure. Certainly when he's walking in with the bomb strapped to his chest, Not sure how I felt. But at this point, Act 2, I like him. I'm glad that Evie's with him, and I hope they become friends. But it doesn't feel like a year is passing. It's such a strange thing for a movie to take place over the span of a year, isn't it? That he's giving them 365 days before his next act. Well, there is only one-fifth of November a year, so... Yeah, but we've seen that before. Werewolf movies, Full Moon Last Three Nights, you know, it could happen on the 1st of November as a build-up to the 5th of November. To go for a full year in which his entire plan seems to be to hang out underground and watch old movies while sword fighting with a suit of armor that doesn't fight back. I mean, he's done his mission, and if it wasn't for Evie's involvement... I don't think V would have been an active character for that year. He would have just hid out and waited for the people to hopefully join his cause. Well, he is going after, though, those people that have created him. He's spending his time on his vendetta. 
Yeah, I agree. Whether the people rally to his side or not, that's for them to decide. I, ultimately, he doesn't claim to want to influence that. He wants whatever they want. But he does also want these four people dead. And I think he would have done that with Evie by his side or not. And speaking of passage of time, I get what you're saying. A year is a long time. It's less of a problem for me here than it was, say, when Bane had six months or whatever it is that Gotham was under the law of anarchy. I think it plays better in this version here. I get the sense of time passing in the first hit because he calls himself the ghost of Christmas past. And so it must be December now. It's the first hit after blowing up the old Bailey. And he, why not go after, yeah, Prospero, that blowhard that every time we see him on the TV, just can't wait to get him off. Even if he agreed what Bloody was saying, it's just too much. He's so arrogant. And of course, they find him here in the bathroom and every wall is a TV set with his face on it. It's just the portrait of hubris and he's got it coming. You know, they picked the right one to start off the hit list. And I do want to compliment this film for creating some powerful imagery. I'm always drawn to what I see on the screen. If I'm struggling with the politics of it, at least I'm enjoying what they're showing me. When we see Pothro, yeah, watching these TVs of himself, listening to these diatribes he's giving, giving it at the same time while he's taking a shower, there's just something powerful about this imagery, this madness this guy has, and something entertaining about it, too. The fact that he's channeling stuff that we actually saw, this guy seems so over the top, right? But by claiming homosexuals are the cause of the British plague is not that far away from the evangelists in America who claimed that gays were the cause of 9-11. Right, yeah, Pat Robertson. But, you know, those were few and far between. I think the problem with this kind of satire, by painting with such a wide brush, you're saying the entire administration is in on it. I think that's what's hard. It's kind of a little bit difficult to believe that Prothero not only holds this position where he spouts all of this propaganda, but also before all of this was actually at the camp where V was created. I mean, that's what's found out by Fitch and his investigation. They're making the link that all of these people are connected to Lark Hill, a detention center very much like Guantanamo, and that V must have been one of their patients. I've never been to Guantanamo. I've only seen some pictures. I didn't think Guantanamo so much in this as much as I went back to Nazis again, concentration camps. And there is a definite difference between what the Nazis did to the Jews and what the U.S. did to the people in Guantanamo Bay. Those are not comparable. Right. And here, I think that this was a lot more Nazi and the fact that it was ending in executions. Yeah, they were rounding up homosexuals, and yeah, this is very concentration camp. They had specific targets. Yeah. Yeah, but you understand they're making that correlation. That's the problem with this satire. It's the problem with the movie I had initially when I saw it was, I'm like, come on, this is a little bit unfair here, that yes, they're comparing Bush to Hitler. That's ridiculous. Well, however you felt about Bush, that statement is overblown. And that's what they're saying, that Guantanamo is a concentration camp. The imagery is specific. They have the red jumpsuits. I mean, it isn't purely World War II imagery. It's the combination of both. They're asking you to draw a parallel. And I think that's where the movie gets in trouble with some of these satirical figures here. It's just a lot to call somebody a Hitler. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems for me is when you get into this, there's St. Mary's and we finally get some backstory that there are these chemical attacks and that they were supposedly done by terrorists and that's what ushered in this tyrannical government. And then, no, it's revealed that those 
things were manufactured by Sutter and, and all these different characters so they could gain power and it's a big conspiracy. I think it's a more powerful statement when there is a tragedy and we let the fear of that tragedy work against us and pass laws like the Patriot or, or whatever that feed into that fear instead of trying to make it this big corporate conspiracy where they're going to develop the virus and then, oh, one of our colleagues also has the cure for it that will now sell and make money. You're calling it satire. Whatever this is doing, I think it does get muddled in this film and it tries to overreach too much. Yeah, it's kind of making fun of both sides because by stating the British government created the disease that then they cured to bring certain people to power is the step too far in that I know there were the conspiracy theories that America either orchestrated 9-11 or allowed 9-11 to happen. But once you start going there, you're off into crazy land and start to alienate anyone who's rational. So it becomes a matter of if you're going to try to satirize, I'm not even going to say the word satirize. If you're going to try to draw parallels between this dystopian future and modern day America and not say this is how it is not saying George Bush is Hitler but I see this as saying you're on a slippery slope America and this is where you could be going by taking the most extreme elements and bringing them in it alienates the moderates even sure and I consider myself a moderate so yeah that was a problem for me watching the movie certainly in 2006 now with some distance and not feeling so caught up in the moment it's less of a problem I think this movie has gotten better with age but yeah it's all the conspiracies rolled up into one I can find a corollary between all the things that they're saying and things that were lobbied against the administration at the time namely that yes this pharmaceutical conspiracy was the fact that Cheney had Halliburton and was paying himself to invade Iraq. I mean, that was an accusation that was being made, that it was a manufactured war to so that certain people, a small group of people, could be rich. It was definitely a criticism, and I think that was the specific thing that they're attacking here. But it's all of them. It's like trying to take an entire encampment of Occupy protesters and making all of their theories cohere into one vision of the most oppressive government possible. It's too much, it becomes unwieldy, and the movie gets in trouble with these broadly drawn caricatures. That said, even today, this resonates with me, much like, you know, Orwell's 1984. I see the world we live in. There is a security camera on every traffic stop I drive through. I am a privacy advocate. I am a big believer in the right to privacy and rights to personal liberties. And so seeing this movie still makes me realize, even though a lot of the things aren't as headline-grabbing, Guantanamo Bay is still open, but we don't read about it every day. The Patriot Act's still in effect, but people aren't yelling about it as much. But... I still see this as a nice cautionary tale of what could happen. Right. It goes a little far, but it still hits home with me. I do see this as an updated version of 1984. That's how I really see this film specifically. And, you know, I saw that 1984 that came out in 1984. I'm glad we got some kind of update to it. And these are just broad, broad strokes. I think this is great if you're 17 or 18 and want to learn that if you want to sit around smoking dope, playing your Xbox, not paying attention to politics, hey, that's going to have consequences. I think this is a great film for that. It's a 101 film to me. It's trying to read too much into it. I I just think it's dangerous because I don't think the film takes the care. It really wants to get into those details. 
Right. It risked being flippant about really important things by giving credence to all criticisms. And as crazy as conspiracies as can be, they all seem to carry the same weight here. I just kind of appreciate more the metaphor. I really kind of appreciate that V represents an idea and he can mean and be many different things to different people. He takes on the perception of what you project on him because he has this mask. And to all of these people he's killing, he was a patient that was the key to the virus, right? He was the one thing that was resistant to the virus they were creating that would eventually create this entire society that they're living in now. He's the one element that they couldn't kill. And now he is coming back to finish the job. I think it's a nice statement of saying no matter how you design a government or how you try to control people, there is always a fringe. There is always an element. There is always something that is excluded that Darwinianly will survive and come back and maybe, just maybe, make you pay for it. I think history does show a lot of those cases. So during the second act, we've all expressed how we feel about the politics here. There is an act that V commits, which when I read it in a comic book, it was hard to accept. And watching it again in this film, it becomes very hard to buy into this character. He basically brainwashes Evie. He fakes her arrest, tortures her, you know, imprisons her. She's starving to death. And nope, it's just to test you. It's just to make sure you're committed to the cause. Well, she does leave him. It's worth pointing out that while they did have a good first date and an okay second date, that she has gotten scared. You know, he puts her on a job. He actually sends her out to help him kill this pedophile bishop. And she tries to warn him. You know, she's not down with it. She is not committed. They want us to believe that's because she's fearful. I don't get from Portman that that's the issue. I think it's more that she finds it distasteful and that she just wants the simplicity of her old life, that she would rather like the comfort of her prison. I think she has to be shocked out of it. There had to be something to take that away from her. And so is it fair that he creates a scenario in which she's stripped of everything, including her beautiful hair? It is a blight against their friendship. I don't blame her for <laughs> wanting to leave him once she finds out what's going on. But I understood why he takes that step. And I do feel like that's truly when ideas sink in. If you think of V as a concept of the essence of rebellion, you don't really want to rebel. You're not really willing to risk everything until it's taken from you. I understand why V does this, but keep in mind, V is crazy. Yes. He's blowing up buildings. <laughs> He's speaking with alliteration and fighting mannequins. I mean, he's our hero, but he's a nut job. So he's an extremist. And so him doing this type of thing isn't out of line. Now, the whole scene, though, this is where this movie elevates for me. It changes. I guess she's in that hole for months and months. And the hair shaving, that's her real hair. I'm wondering if those are real tears, because I understand women get really traumatized when their hair gets cut too short, even, let alone shaven like that. And she had short hair for many years to after that before she could grow it all back. And it's really a forceful scene. I haven't warmed to Evie, but I pity her. When she is in that gross room with that gross toilet and the rat eating her gruel, it is pathetic. And then she finds that note, that little toilet paper autobiography from a lesbian who was... I can't tell if Evie just found it in the crack or if it was supposed to have been handed to her from one cell over. But 
that is one hell of a powerful scene of flashback of how this government just took two people in love and screwed them over and ruined their lives and killed them. I totally agree, Arnie. As much as this imprisonment plot and brainwashing, I'll call it plot, bothers me, favorite part uh, probably of the graphic novel and definitely of this film is the Valerie story. She reads that notice by this character named Valerie, which we'll find out later that she was real, but it caught my guard too. I'm like, oh, this is a V plot. Her name starts with a V, but no. But yeah, it's this beautiful tragic story like her in love with this other woman and and what happens to him it's something that's very emotional to watch this is the part of the dystopia that feels less prophetic right i mean i feel if anything gay rights homosexual acceptance we're not headed down this path i don't feel that rounding up and killing them all is where it's going it was weird to me that they brought that component into what I really took more about being anti-war and government spying on their own people. I felt like that was the stronger, more pertinent message. This was an unexpected one, but you're right. It's lyrical. It's beautiful. We will never know what happens to this character beyond this story. It's written on toilet paper, uh, autobiography on toilet paper that just says tragedy. It, it has a nice moment. If it weren't done so well, I'd probably reject it, but I buy it. I buy that hearing that story would be inspiring to Evie at this point in her life, that she would be ready to die for the cause, which is not ratting out V. It helps that it really ties back to Evie's own life. I mean, first of all, we saw in the flashback, like you said, her parents being kidnapped by the fingermen, the bags put over their head. She's hiding under the bed. She goes to see that newscaster friend of hers when she escapes V and finds out he's gay. He has these bondage photos on the wall and he gets kidnapped and killed and she's again under the bed. So now she's seen two sets of parental figures taken by the fingermen, one of whom was gay. She's reading this letter and able to see other people's lives were ruined, the loved ones taken by the fingermen, and then them themselves taken. It is a parallel to what she's going through, told through a prism of homosexuality. But it is a great tale. I don't know if that's something where, you know, you say things are going that way. I don't know if the Jews in 1920 expected concentration camps 20 years later. So it's a good way to demonize the other. Yeah, it demonizes them. But I, what I'm saying is it doesn't really seem to be happening right now. When I look around, I see basketball players coming out and being celebrated. I see marriage equality coming closer to legality. I see things happening that don't lead me to believe that gay people are going to be rounded up and killed for being gay. So that's all I'm saying is that this component of it feels very old world. Could we fall back into that if disease is spread? Could we fall back on that if we're suppressed and we don't have access to information and culture and arts and learning about each other as a culture? I suppose, but like I said, this is the part of the movie that doesn't feel as connected to the message. It's a little off message here. And I think this is because it's a holdover from the 80s where this would have been very cutting edge at the time right. to talk about homosexuality being a good thing in the 80s. I mean, yeah, you're right, Stuart. Now, if you see homosexuality as a bad thing, you're, you're like a dinosaur. That, that's yeah. such a weird idea now today. 
it is looked at on the same level as racism or sexism, as something that is understood, that it continues, it will not be abolished, but is unpopular and is unfavorable. And it's hard to imagine a society tolerating concentration camps. It seems extreme. But I do like the moment. I, I buy it because it's beautiful and, and the way that they've made it. And, you know, you bring up that character. They tease the idea that we may know V. You know, that's one of the things they really keep up here is that V may be a character that we've met. And that this Gordon guy, it could be V. They have a strange parallel. You know, he also has a back room full of contraband materials. He also makes the same kind of breakfast for her when she comes to live with him. They have the same kind of asexual but loving relationship. He talks about wearing a mask. We are meant to believe his status in the propaganda could give him access to broadcast V messages. This is our number one suspect for V, but we'll never know for sure. We're pretty sure that he was killed, even though Evie was taken away by V. I don't believe that V, well, if you believe that V was Gordon, then he staged his own black bag carrying away. But we saw Creedy come into the room. I have to believe that that gentleman really is dead. And I also believe that Stephen Fry, the actor playing Gordon, could never do some of this sword <laughs> fighting and running. That Much too portly to fit in yeah. the clothes V's wearing. Yeah, I think because of the body shape and that wonderful Benny Hill videotape, I never believed that those two were the same person. I just saw them as having a lot of parallels. They're both people who took Evie in. Evie went to Gordon when she was fleeing V, and Gordon completely misunderstands her and instead reveals that his house is a lot like V's lair. She goes from one anarchist to basically another, only one is far more overt while wearing a mask, and the other is far more closeted while on public television. But I think that there's just a lot of repetition of theme and her encountering people and realizing that there is more dissidence than she realizes. It's just under the surface. Yeah, if V is an idea, then yeah, there should be other people that replicate that. It isn't a single person. It's a set of beliefs. So I like that they play with that, that there's these multiple versions of him that could actually be V. Yeah. And again, I believe that it also could be her father. We're told that he's dead. We saw no footage of him. We never even really saw him as a character. He was just somebody that supposedly was cornered in a military raid and was supposedly shot. It could be the mother. It could be the brother. We were told they died of the virus, but maybe they didn't. I think what works so well about V is that ultimately she says it in the final line. He's all of us. He's everyone that's oppressed. V is a stand-in for whoever feels oppressed and needs to stand up for themselves. And so by never giving us that, I think that's wise. I would have not accepted Stephen Fry at ripping off the mask at some point and saying, you want another eggy in the blanket? I mean, that just it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> <laughs> but... I also think that when we find out V's backstory, that I do think his superhuman fighting skills and his unbelievable stamina and ability to take a bullet and keep fighting comes from the experimentation they did on him. He gets burned head to toe and continues to fight. I think that he was altered by their experimentation, which rules out any normal person because this guy had third degree burns. If we ever saw his face, he'd probably be Freddy Krueger. Welcome to prime time, Evie. Yeah, we do see his hands earlier on and see that they're horribly disfigured. Exactly. So Evie basically makes the decision that she's going to take a false identity. She's going to leave. She's going to accept V's offer to leave him. 
And she kind of drops out of the story at this point. Act three is really about everyone. It's about everyone else now. It is about that little girl with the glasses going out there and spray painting V on the propaganda posters. It is about people using the Guy Fawkes masks that have been mailed to them to rob convenience stores and to really create an environment of chaos. I mean, this was what Bane was creating, right? In Dark Knight Rises, this is what is happening now. It's much more overt in the book, but I totally get Dark Knight Rises now. They really play this down in the film. In the book, they talk about the stage of thou shalt, I think, take what you want. Something like that, where before you have the peaceful anarchist moment, you will have chaos. People will die and riot and beat each other up. And we get a single scene of like a convenience store robbery in this film. I do have a question though. Finch has figured out V's plot and he has this weird like I don't know vision or something like we see the girl get shot after she's spray painting the V and then I swear we see her later on in the crowd is this a vision he even talks about it you know I can now see how everything is going to unfold is this actually happening or I get kind of lost at this point this is all actually happening but he knows what will happen but not the specifics he knows something will occur that something is the girl he knows what that will in sight, which is the riots against the finger men when they see this girl dead. He doesn't know this girl is dying. He's not seeing the girl. He's just seeing the pattern. Just like at that moment, V has this wonderful domino setup that he's having fall. And Finch sees what the domino effect will cause. Now, this girl showing up at the end, everyone shows up at the end. Valerie shows up at the end. I went through to see if I could find Hugo weaving, because it seems like everybody who died is there at the end and takes off the mask, because he is everyone. So it's not that she was resurrected, it's not that this didn't happen, it's that the end scene makes no fucking sense, because it tries to be too symbolic and ends up fucking its own ass. You see, I never saw all those other people, I just noticed the girl, so okay. And I took it to mean that maybe she didn't die. I mean, yeah, maybe she got shot. Maybe that did cause a street riot, but it's not like people don't recover from bullet wounds. It's not impossible. Valerie was in that crowd, too. Yeah. There were a lot of dead people in that crowd. Yeah, I like that take on it, actually. I like the idea that the spirit of those people are with the other people that show up in the masks, that there is unity, even that spans death. I think that's actually beautiful. You're dinging the ending as being metaphorical. I think that this character is metaphorical. I think going with a metaphorical ending is the right choice. I think it comes across as confusing, as Jacob's question proves. I think that the first time I watched it, I'm like, wait. Wait, aren't these people dead? What the fuck's going on? I think that it was done poorly. Yeah, I, I've missed it both times. I confused why that girl was there. I didn't recognize Valley. I didn't recognize the other ones. I wish that was done better. It's a beautiful piece of symbolism. It gets lost. I think a lot of this ending gets lost. There's so many characters and you start getting into Creedy. Yes. That's what gets lost. Why does Cheney betray Bush? I don't understand this. To save his own job. I mean, he's going to be the fall guy if V succeeds. And so since he knows V is unstoppable, it's a question of who's going to turn on whom first. Yeah, but V comes to him in a greenhouse surrounded by guards. Nobody can nab this guy. Nobody tries. It plays weird is what I'm saying. I guess I could understand if they had set it up right. It just feels weird that Crowley is going to try this. I took it more as like, well, this government has probably existed under John Hurt's character 
all of this time, if someone new wants to come to power, they need to create a new disease. They need to create a new tragedy in which that they will be allowed to supersede the old leader. And so thus killing Parliament is a way for Crowley to take the opportunity to finally be boss. He's lived in the shadows. He's run the secret police. Now he can finally be chancellor. And that's why he does it. That's how I took it anyway. And I get that, that he wants to rise to power. It's just there's so many characters. I'm like, okay, mm. we, which one is this? I get lost. And it's an even bigger problem in the comic. But even here, I get lost with all these characters at the end. I agree about the big problem with the comic, because that is where I got confused, is all of these government characters. And again, the art. I couldn't tell who was who in this comic. But in the movie, the first time around, it was confusing to me. By the second time, I could tell Creedy apart and from Finch and from Sutler, and it became much easier for me. I actually kind of like this ending for V. The fact that all of these people, including that priest, were involved in his prison. Convenient. But I like how he convinces Creedy to turn against Sutler. I expect Creedy to do a triple cross, though. I was really shocked at how easy it was that Sutler is brought down. We've pretty much only seen him on monitors this whole movie. So to see him with a bag over his head and a bloody forehead where he was hit, that seems a little bit too convenient. I thought Creedy would say I'm bringing Sutler and then try to turn on V, but instead he's going to screw both of them over, let V kill Sutler, and then try to stop V. Yeah, we needed an action scene, right? I mean, this has largely been sold as the people from the Matrix are going to give you Matrix again, and Joel Silver is making this, for Christ's sakes. They action guru of our times i mean this needed more action in order to fill that quotient i do wonder if you're not tapping into the ideas of this movie how it would really be playing to you what i'm largely engaged with is the metaphor is the stories the drama the parallels as an action movie i feel like i'm not an action movie guy i haven't missed it but i wonder if it has been missing but we get it here finally for sure v takes all these people out yeah and what did you call it jacob Dagger time? Knife time. Knife time, yeah. And there's some knife time killing here. Salomo. A lot of blood. I didn't realize this was an R-rated movie until this moment. Oh, there were a lot of scenes and themes in here that felt R-rated to me. It's about a terrorist. This ain't getting a PG-13. <laughs> I like this fight at the end. I do think that the little wake behind the knives as they fly... They're reaching into the Matrix a little bit too much. This was kind of a dated special effect by 2001, let alone 2006, when this actually was released. But I like it. It's operatic, and this whole movie has been operatic, with the classical music and everything. It's very fitting, and that V just keeps going. No matter how many times they shoot him, he just keeps going. The fact that they say, we have guns. He's like, well, that doesn't matter. What you have is bullets. And the hope you have is that I don't kill you before you're able to reload. This is very action movie writing, these taunts he gives, but I enjoy this. The fact that he's like, you won't be able to kill me because I'm an idea. Like, you're almost fighting a ghost here. And I get that. I understand what that idea is. V is not the face of the revolution. He has no ideas. The thing that I was against the movie the first time I watched it was that he thought that, oh, if I blow up a building, that'll solve all their problems. No, he isn't the voice of the answer. He's only the voice of the vigilante. You know, he can only inspire the bloody axe. He cannot find the solutions. It is for Evie to pull the lever and say the building is destroyed. He can only do the killing. It's for her to do the rebuilding. 
And I think that was the right impulse. It was a bold one, not to show his face, to have him die here, and to make her sort of responsible for whether change happens at all, the expectation of change anyway. Nothing really changes. The building blows up. Keep in mind, that's not change. They've still got to figure out how they're going to get food tomorrow. But it is a representation. It is a symbol of hope. And it's Evie that gets to do it. And she does that with Finch at her side. How do you guys feel about that twist? That Finch has spent this whole time and he's investigated the government and he's found out all about how Sutler rose to power and how they owned the pharmaceutical company that made the cure. But given all of this, is that enough information to let you think that Finch would just stand there complicit and become the new Evie as Evie takes him up on the roof to see the fireworks of Parliament blowing up? It's not how the book ends. Yeah, he goes on a big drug trip trying to get into the criminal mind, drops some acid. In the graphic novel, Evie actually becomes V, that the character is reborn in her. She puts on the mask that she is going to carry it on. Like, like it's a legacy thing that this is like Batman. Somebody new each year and it'll just be a new actor. And this is the Evie era of the Batman scenario. I'm glad they didn't do that. I think they didn't really have an ending. I think that all they could do was end in this moment for her to recognize and to acknowledge all the people it's taken to get to this point. It's hard to dramatize revolution. It's easy to say we won the war when you blow up something and round up the bad guys or whatever, but true change, what this society is going to do now, it would be impossible to dramatize. It would be impossible to give us anything more. It would require a sequel that looks nothing like this movie in order for us to understand how she's going to take everything that has happened to her with her into the future. I think all you can do is, yeah, look at the fireworks and accept that that's what it is. I think that there was nothing else for Finch to do other than to acknowledge that it was the right thing to have this old world collapse. He knew by this point he didn't want to work for that chancellor. Not that he could anyway, they're all dead. I think that from what you've described and what I remember, this is telling us that Evie's the new V. She doesn't have to put on the mask. Everybody else is wearing the mask. She takes Finch up on the roof. That tells me everything I need to know, that she's now the leader of the revolution. She pulled the lever. She made her choice. Kind of a strange comeback from, you shaved my hair, locked me in a hole, so now I'm going to continue your ways. Maybe she ends up putting Finch in a hole. Who knows? Yeah, that's more of what the comic led you to believe, was that it required her to take someone new. It wasn't Finch, but it would take someone new and uneducated like she was at the start and educate them in the ways. But they don't need to. I mean, they have totally brought down the society. That was less true, I think, in the book. There was no blowing up Parliament climax to the end of the book here because they've chosen to go that route. They have to make it mean something. And I think it means that there's no more totalitarianism. There's no more Nazis. There's no more oppression. There's no more concentration camps. Whatever happens next, it will be different. So they don't need a V. V is dead. Yeah, I think one of the ideas, I think you get it more in the book, is that V's tactics aren't that different. I mean, we see him torture Evie. They're not that different from this fascist government. There's much more moral ambiguity there. Two different ideas, but they're using the same tactics here. In this film, at least, here's the third way. Now we've been able to push away both of those extremes. We've created something new. Now where do we go? I don't know if that comes out that strongly because V is the hero. You know, we're supposed to go with him. But when you really break it down, whether you're an anarchist or on the far left or on the Tea Party, 
you could quote V a lot and get it to fit into your politics. You know, the people shouldn't be afraid of the government. The government should be afraid of the people. Well, I've heard that on both sides. So it, it would make sense, I think, more thematically to go for this middle road that both the extremes have now been pushed away and we're moving into more of a democratic process with all the people there to form this new government. Yeah. Despite the comic being anarchy versus totalitarianism, here, I just feel like the people are basically issuing a recall vote. They're they're just going to go to the polls and vote for hope and change is kind of what I take at the end of this. Yeah, but there is no Obama figure. There was no knowledge of what would happen next, 2005, when this was made. Nobody knew what the answer was. It was easier to rail against what was a known threat than what could be. I mean, I think this movie if it had been made now, would have a different ending. I do think this is the ending that you would have in second term Bush era and criticizing his presidency. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that this movie is alluding to Obama, but I'm saying that the mindset of the people could mirror the mindset of the most ardent Obama supporters who bought into the hope and change propaganda and went out so fervently to give him such a landslide victory. That's what I feel those people there are representing. They're not just celebrating the burning down of parliament and going to start burning down and killing the politicians themselves and having the anarchy Jacob described earlier where people are going to die. No, they're just mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore by voting and being civil. Well, without a parliament, it should be said, they don't have a institution that used to get stuff done i mean that's they don't have a building they blew it up i don't think that this is a rejection of conservatism for liberalism it really is more of a libertarian construct we don't want rules or governments i really feel like ultimately this goes beyond the party politics you hear about all the time on talk radio and news cycles i disagree because Like Jacob said, they just blew up a building. They didn't kill anyone. And you say libertarianism, but then you describe anarchism, which are two different things. These people aren't saying they want no rules. They're saying they want fair rules. They want democratic rules. They're tired of living under the thumb of this dictator who used them for his own profits. But I don't get them out there. If you'd shown me these people stringing up the members of parliaments and hanging them, then I'd believe they were anarchists. They're just standing there very quietly, very peaceably. To me, they're hippies. To me, they're staging the ultimate sit-in with masks. I think this is the Occupy movement. I don't think these are the Obama voters. I think these are the people that were frustrated with Obama and still are looking for that change. I don't see what you're seeing here at the end. I I don't see a whole lot of difference between the Occupy movement (laughs) and the Democrats. I'm right there with you. I Okay, I do. I think in the end, you know, this blowing up parliament is going to be as effective as the Occupy movement was. It's a beautiful fantasy, but I does a disservice for being a real political movie by not proposing or giving a hint at what happens the next day. Who's going to make sure there's clean water? Who's going to make sure there's food in the stores? You know, this is a beautiful fantasy, but that's all it is. It ends up becoming a fairy tale. Yeah, but does it work as a movie? Let's find out. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend V for Vendetta? Jacob. I think I've made it pretty clear as a a political statement. It's iffy. I think this is a great way to start a conversation. 
I think this is a great way to create a parable of where apathy could get you, where fear could get you by letting the government play on those fears or not being involved in politics, at least paying attention. Yes, this works as kind of that pop political 101 course to get you motivated to look deeper. It works well as that when you try to really get into it, there's problems. But I don't think this has to work as just this film about anarchism and overthrowing the government. Stuart, you asked, does this work as an action film? Yeah, I think this works as, you know, you want a 1984 with more action and more fights and more knives throwing. Yeah, I think this does work on that level as well. So as far as getting into these themes and and being deep about politics, I'm lukewarm on that. I, I think it's a good conversation starter. But as an entertaining film, yeah. Yeah, I could go with it. I recommend V for Vendetta. Stuart. Yeah, at the time when I originally saw this, I was mixed. I mostly liked it, but there were just things about its politics that were upsetting. And I think from the distance of time, it's much easier to just appreciate the movie for what it's able to give us. It seems like a much more bold vision because we're out of the heat of that political discourse of 2005, 2006. Not to say that we're out of the frying pan, but just that the conversation has somewhat changed now. Things have been reset. Bringing up Bush's name means something different today than it did in 2005. So it's easier to talk about this movie and appreciate this movie on all levels now. I like this movie better. I think, yeah, it works as a pretty good Nolan Batman movie. It does not compare to me with Batman Begins or Dark Knight's. But I do think it's better than Dark Knight Rises, and I really can appreciate the boldness of its vision. I mean, I think you have to just accept that they're not going to try and offer you a world. V is not selling you a vision of utopia. He is giving you bombs, telling you to blow up what is wrong and to use your own choices to make what's right. It's a limited fantasy, but I think it's applicable. I think it is a conversation starter, and I think this movie has and will continue to stand the test of time. I think it's one that will be remembered and talked about for a long time. And so a pretty solid recommend. I also just want to say, I think it's the best parent-child relationship we've had of this Hitman series so far. I think V and Evie might be my favorite pairing of Hitman. Stuart, it just seems we can't agree. First of all, I don't think they're parent-child. I think they're lovers. So if that's the best parent-child relationship, it has a tinge of incest. Nothing wrong with a little Freudian relationship going on there. And... You say this is one that'll stand the test of time. I think it will for those of us who like it. I don't feel this film has stood the test of time as far as relevancy. When it came out, it seemed to be a big thing among people to talk about. Natalie Portman went on SNL to promote it. A lot of my friends were talking about it. I don't hear this movie brought up much anymore. It seems to have been forgotten with so many spectacular movies of the past 10 years when there's just another blockbuster around the corner. I don't think a lot of people remember this one. I think with us reviewing it, a whole bunch of people are going, oh yeah, I remember that, or oh yeah, I meant to see that. Besides the millions of masks sold every year. Those are just at Comic-Con. I can't go to Comic-Con and not encounter a dozen Guy Fawkes. Or any protest these days, anonymous, that's their symbol too now. Yeah, I think that's what I meant by remembrance, is that, you know, a lot of movies are remembered as great times, and I don't think this will be 
one that people remember like the Avengers. I just think it's significant. I think it's groundbreaking in ways that will be recognized and remembered in ways that other more popular movies get forgotten or lumped into the same category. Now, that's very true. I think The Mask has gone on to become bigger than this movie that originated it. A lot of people wear The Mask and know what The Mask symbolizes without seeing this movie or knowing Guy Fawkes. But as far as the movie itself, I really, really like this movie. It has some weaknesses that I've pointed out. Portman's performance is poor. And I think that not all the story strands come together. I think there's some conveniences of plot. And I feel a lot of its politics are very dated. That said, I remember its period very well. This film had a great impact on me and my view of the world and my view of government when this came out. It really helped crystallize some things that were in my mind, but much more ethereal. So... For a movie that excites on the level of an action film, but makes me think on the level of an art house film, I'm going to give this a strong recommend, despite its flaws. That said, I'm going to give it the heavy caveat that there's a lot of people who, due to their own political beliefs, will not appreciate this film at all. You won't see anything in it because you're going to be so far against all of the things that it's purporting that you're just going to sit there pissed off. So if you can't approach a movie like, say, Fahrenheit 9-11, and even if you don't agree with it, if you're just going to sit there and tear it apart and not be able to appreciate any entertainment value from V for Vendetta, don't watch it. If you know that you have political views that are opposed to the things we talked about and you're just going to get pissed off by this movie existing, don't watch it. But... For those who, you may not have to agree with it, but you can enjoy the discourse. I give you a recommend, and I love this movie. I'm three for three on this series so far. I'm enjoying the hell out of our DC Hitmen. Yeah, it's a quite unusual series. I can see themes and ideas carried over, but each time I feel like, yeah, we're given a totally new experience. And we're going to take a little break. Next week, we're just going to get back to what we do best, watching giant robots kick the shit out of each other you know <laughs> I, I think it's time for some less heady film discussions transformers 4 is already out <laughs> next year but for this year yeah we get the wannabe or maybe the better than maybe the movie transformers should be i certainly hope so i have some hopes that guillermo del tormo can work and give us the transformers movie we still haven't gotten yet with pacific rim it's Guillermo del Toro. I'm not sure it's going to be entirely less heady. I've seen Pan's Labyrinth, and we've discussed Blade 2, but I'm certainly looking forward to whatever he has to offer. So we will do that next Tuesday and return to the DC Hitmen in two weeks with the Losers. Yeah, I don't know much about that one, but I'm betting it's going to be far less dramatic than these first three. There's no way they're going to keep a father-child thing going. I, I think it gets fun from this point out, guys. All right, so until next week, you have no fear anymore. You are completely free. Pinball, this is Chopper 3. Prepare for extraction. My favorite part was when we were completely on fire, but the shootout, that was good times. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Now I get to walk away. We all would have walked rogue. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Hitman movie. A more perfect stage could not be asked for. 
In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear reviews of hundreds of comic book movies, such as all the Batman and Superman films, the Marvel Avengers films, Spider-Man, Catwoman, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Kick-Ass, X-Men, and many more. You can also hear reviews of non-comic-based films, including Star Trek, Predator, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. It's like giving a handgun to a six-year-old, Wade. You don't know how it's going to end, but you're pretty sure it's going to make the papers. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I need you. They're coming. I can feel it. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. How much do you want? $200. Okay. Good deal. Could I have had more? You'll never know. You can also help Now Playing by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Even though I do not know you, I love you. With all my heart, I love you. Now Playing's DC Hitmen Retrospective series is edited by Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. This is a nice town. We have nice people here. We take care of our nice people. You understand me? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. We heard his voice. The man with a voice, the man with the throat. The guy's got a throat. Come on. Now Playing is not affiliated with the producers of these motion pictures. All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. So it's like that, huh? Yeah. It's like that. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. As the authenticity of this document cannot be verified, it could be an elaborate forgery created by the terrorist as easily as it could be the deranged fantasy of a former party member who resigned for psychological reasons. Any discussion of this document or its contents will be regarded at the very least as an act of sedition, if not a willful act of treason. Now playing as a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Frank, how many times have I told you, you cannot trust the system? I told you, when you're in the system, they switch the flip, and you're done. Voila, in a view, a humble Vaudevillian veteran cast vicariously as both villain and victim. Voila, in a... Voila! And this is your vibrantly... Blah, blah, blah. This is your vibrant... Thank God this I didn't is, do that. I know. Well, you gotta do something. <laughs> this is your vibrant, vivacious, vital host who view... R for Revenge. There's a whole series of novels of these, right? Dial M for Murder. That was a play. Isn't there like this book? There, there is an author who does <laughs> there are books, every yes. letter. <laughs> no, Arnie, yeah. there is an author that that's going. I don't know if she's finished the alphabet, but yes, an A for this, a B for that. You're thinking of Sue Grafton. And with this disease and cure, a new totalitarian English regime led by High Chancellor Adel. Ugh, but in this new.
You want to talk about the? Sorry, I was muted. I was sneezing, and <laughs> then I didn't realize when you started saying, "Do you want to talk about V?" I'm like, "But I'm talking about England." Oh, okay. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh wait, I'm muted. Um, it's a long pause. <laughs> yeah, it was. When she first walks into V's lair, V's watching television. He's watching The Count of Monte Crisco, and he shares it with her. And at the end, Cristo, oh, God, fucking sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's Monte Cristo, but Crisco is a is a short. Crisco is yeah. <laughs> it's lard. <laughs> oh no. Portman's performance is poor. There's some alliteration for V. Only I used P's. <laughs>